reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confessions of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, as Betty has read for us this morning, on the title... The sermon this morning is Relationships Are Everything. Relationships are everything. And the reason why it's called that in our our series ready to launch is because uh, we'll look at some specific application toward the end of the sermon to parents and to um, you in terms of how you could minister to other people. But relationships are everything because that's such a true statement. Your, uh, Your life is affected by relationships, whether that is a relationship with a spouse, relationships with kids, relationships with uh, co-workers, um, relationships with um, people in the community. Even the, the biggest introvert uh, has an important relationship, and it's the relationship with yourself. You know, everybody uh, relationships matter so much. They're a huge part of our life. And I, I, I was looking back this week when I was thinking about how we look at how relationships have kind of evolved over time. And I was thinking about one of my favorite TV shows of all time and how relationships in that show were portrayed. And that was the Andy Griffith show. Is anybody, are any, is anybody fans here? Okay, good. We have more godly people than I thought. So, uh, so watch it, Andy Griffith. And think about like, how it's portrayed, how relationships are portrayed in, that, in the TV series. You have everybody, they come over for dinner, right? And they come over to Andy's house and Aunt B's cooking and everybody sits around the table whenever there's company over. And then what happens after that? You go outside or you go in the living room or you go outside and you sit around the, the porch and, and Andy maybe picks a guitar a little bit, you know, and Aunt B comes out there and she's like threading something together, you know, and, and Barney's talking about all the stuff he wants to do for the rest of the day. And you just have this time of togetherness and relationships of kind of how they were meant to be together and all of us really enjoying each other. And then you, you think about it, and I was, I was looking back and thinking about how relationships have evolved over time, and then you think about now uh, how they're portrayed. You might eat dinner together, but you're Instagramming the picture of what you're about to eat while you're Snapchatting, snap, I don't even have that, Snapchatting people uh, while you're eating, and then you're Facebooking about the nap you're going to take after you get done with your meal. You know, relationships are so different than they once were But there's one thing that kind of holds them together, and that is the idea that we need relationships with each other. Whether it be through uh, like personal relationship or through uh, social media, we need relationships with each other. And in terms of thinking about social media, one thing that I think social media has tried to do, and they've been very successful at it, is give us access to people constantly. We have access to, to each other 
constantly. We can look and see what we're doing or what somebody else is doing. They've given us access to the people we know, but they've also given us access limited to people we don't know. You know, one thing social media has tried to do is take people who are superstars, LeBron James, um, Taylor Swift, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, whatever. Think about the superstar in your life and think uh, social media has tried to make them accessible. Here's the only problem. The only people who are actually accessible in your life are those people in your contacts. Those people that you know closely. Because even though you may follow LeBron James on Twitter, you look and realize that it doesn't matter how many direct messages I send to him, how many times I tag him in a photo, I do not have access to that man. You know, you might could pay money to go courtside, but you're still not in his circle. You don't have access to him. And the writer of Hebrews is talking this morning about something very, very similar. See, the writer of Hebrews uses a word here at the very start of our passage in verse 19 that enlightens us into a point he's trying to make. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, which points to the fact that at some point there was not confidence to enter in the holy places or therefore there wasn't access to God. I think many times in our, in, in, our, in our life, because we have access to anything and we can Google anything at any moment, and many of you in here know the Lord and we aren't Israelites, so we don't understand how God was inaccessible, it's easy for us to think we can just talk to God right now and he hears us, and that's as simple as that. But at one point in history, it wasn't that simple. At one point in history, God was so inaccessible that people actually died in his presence. We'll look at that in just a moment. But before we can realize that we have access today to a God of this universe, we have to realize that at one point there was not access to him. So we're going to take a journey uh, briefly this morning through a little bit of the Old Testament. You see, at a time in history, there was Moses. And Moses had led his people out of Egypt, had led the Israelites out of Egypt. And he was up on, uh, up on the mountain uh, one day and he was talking to God and he said, God, I want to I see you. And God said, Moses, you can't see my face, but I'll, I'll walk by you and you can look. So he walks by and Moses saw God's back. And because he saw God's back and the, the, the glory that just came off of God and Moses' sinfulness that separated him from God, he came down off of that mountain and his own people couldn't even look at him in the face because God's glory was just beaming off of him. Because God is that holy and Moses and the rest of the Israelites and the rest of humanity is that sinful. Or we think about when Moses built the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And within that tabernacle you had an outer court where only some of your best people could go. And then in the inner court you had where only the priests could go. And then you had the holy of holies, this one place in the center of that or, or in the center of the innermost uh, court where the, the high priest could go. But the high priest had to be cleansed of his sin before he could go in there. You see, this tabernacle was built to to perfect specs that God had given Moses. Why? Because God's presence was not going to dwell in anything that was imperfect. You see, inside that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, this this box that had been created. And it it was to house God's presence for the priest to go into. 
So you see, God was inaccessible to the average man because the average man just couldn't pull back the curtain and walk into the Holy of Holies lest he die. At one point, 2 Samuel 6 uh, tells us that um, there was a guy carrying the Ark of the Covenant um, like, like they used to carry, he would have a, a rail here and there was a guy in front of him have a rail and a guy beside him and a guy beside him and they carried the Ark of the Covenant on that or he stepped across a threshold. When he did, it rocked and he put his hand up to stop it and God's anger, the Bible says, kindled against him and he fell dead. And many of you might would think, you know, that seems kind of harsh. Why would God like kill that man for touching that? God is trying to prove to the rest of the world that we cannot approach him flippantly. God's presence and his holiness are far greater than our ability just to say, yo, what's up, God? God is greater. God is more holy than that. And we see that in that particular section. But then what we see next in God's inaccessibility is the fact that people had to rely on their priests for access to God. You see, people had to rely on their priests to walk into the Holy of Holies and speak to God on their behalf. It started out with Moses, and it went from Moses to Aaron. Aaron became the first high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies and talk to God on behalf of his people. And we see God's holiness and our sinfulness and the inaccessibility of God mostly in Leviticus 16. Because in Leviticus 16, we actually see what Aaron, the high priest, had to go through in order for his people to have their sin forgiven. I'm going to kind of go through for a moment the process that Aaron had to do. He had to go and he had to choose a bull and two rams or two goats. He would then, upon choosing them, he would go and he would bathe and he would, he would take a bath in water and then he would put on a linen undergarment. He would then put on an outer garment, tie a linen sash and then put a linen turban on his head. And he would go, and from there he would go, and he would take the bull, and he would slaughter the bull. And he would take the bull, and he would go in there, and he would dip his finger in the blood, and he would wipe his finger across the mercy seat. That was the, the, the part of the Ark of the Covenant that God's presence dwelt. He would wipe his finger across that seven times. And in doing so, he was asking God to forgive his sin and his family's sin. So he would do that, and then he would go and he would take one of those goats, and he would take one and he would slaughter it, and then he would take his finger and he would wipe it across the mercy seat seven more times to say, God, please forgive my people. I've already asked forgiveness for me and my family, God. Now please forgive my people. Because, see, the Israelites were sinful. Aaron was a sinful man, so he had to ask God to forgive his sins so that he could go and ask God to forgive his people's sin. But from there, he would take blood from both. And he would put it on the horns of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would go from there, and he would take the, 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 the final animal, the other goat, and he would place his hands on that goat's head. And he would symbolically cast all of the sins of Israel onto that goat. To say, now you, this animal here, symbolically carry the sins of my people. And what they would do is they would send that goat out into the wilderness. And, you know, they, they wanted the goat to be gone because you don't want your scapegoat or your goat that has your sins to, like, wander back into camp. You know, you wouldn't want that because you want your sins to be gone. So here's what they would do. They would set up people along this pathway. And that goat would get so far. And as soon as that goat got so far, somebody would make sure that that goat got to the next person way down there. And they would do that all the way down until they reached this super high cliff close to the Dead Sea. 
And I've been there. I, I had the opportunity to go there about three years ago. And that cliff, probably several hundred feet up in the air, if you were to fall off that cliff, just has these jagged rocks. And the whole point was they wanted to make sure that goat made it all the way to that cliff and fell off those rocks so that the goat carrying their sin would die so that their sin would be forgiven. And what would happen as soon as the goat would tumble off the cliff, the guy at the very end would yell back and say, it is finished. And the guy would then yell back, it is finished. And they would yell that all the way back until it reached the high priest, at which moment he would then go and he would bathe again. And then he would put his regular garments back on And that would happen year after year after year after year after year. See, we we look at that and we say, man, you know, like, that seems like a lot. But I don't know that we grasp the gravity of that moment. The people are standing there. Their whole well-being and livelihood is is banking on, is this man going to walk out of there? Is the high priest going to walk out of there? And is our sin going to be forgiven? It's almost like the anticipation that you feel whenever maybe you've had a family member go into a very serious surgery. And they go into that surgery and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. So you're just sitting there and you're in anticipation like what's going to happen next. And finally you see the doctor walk out and you jump up and you run to the doctor and say, Hey, can you tell me what's going on now? That's the way these people would have felt. They wanted their sin to be forgiven. And they relied on that priest. They couldn't rely on themselves. Because God was inaccessible to them, they relied on that priest to access God for them. And the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, switch in New Testament now, the whole book of Hebrews, is the whole purpose of the book is to show how Jesus was better than the old covenant. The old covenant was what we just looked at. The priest going into the Holy of Holies year after year. But it said, Therefore, brothers, we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What once was a one man who walked in to the presence of God on behalf of the people, and those people didn't have access to God now because Jesus has gone before us to die on the cross for your sins and for you, and he died in your place. When you place faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in you, and now you have full access to the God of the universe. Jesus died once and for all. It didn't have to happen year after year after year. And because of that, we can now approach God with confidence. What was once, is our priest going to make it out of the Holy of Holies? We said, no, our priest went before us and died for us. And now we have access to God because of what he's done. It says, because of that, we enter God's presence with confidence. You see, Aaron had to atone for his own sin. He had to ask God to forgive his own sin before he could ask God to forgive the sins of his people. Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to do anything but take on our sin and the weight of your guilt, the weight of your shame, and he hung on the cross for you so that now you can talk and have a relationship with the God of this universe. You see, what was once anxiety and fear and lack of confidence is now joy and peace because if you're a follower of Christ, you know that you have access to God. So the writer of Hebrews says, look, because we have access to God, because we can confidently talk to him because of what Jesus has done, and he's opened up a new way for us to be able to access God, he gives us three things that we're to do. Because of our relationship with God now being accessible, we're to draw near 
that's draw near to God. The second thing is we're to hold firm. We're to hold firm what God has told us. And lastly, it involves uh, involves relationships with each other. We are to stir up. We'll get into that in a moment. But this passage and this message is all about relationships. Your relationship with God, which was once non-existent, You've trusted in Christ if you're sitting in this room potentially. You've trusted in Christ and now Jesus has forgiven you of the wrong that you've done and therefore you now have a relationship with God. So the writer of Hebrews says, draw near. Draw near to God. The Israelites had no confidence because of their sinfulness. But guess what? The Bible teaches that even in spite of your sinfulness, Jesus died for you. So even in the midst of your sin, In the midst of my sin, now I have a relationship with God and I need to draw near to him. James 4.8 says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near and nearer and nearer to you. Is that not a phenomenal concept that the God who spoke this world into being has given us now access to be with him, to have a relationship with him? That's a marvelous, glorious truth that I think sometimes we can have a tendency to forget that God who spoke your life into being, we didn't have to, he didn't have to allow us to be able to know him, but he's given us that opportunity. And he says, now I want you to draw near to me. And I think sometimes what also happens is we think God doesn't want us to draw near to him because we look back and say, you know, if, if, if I look at what I've done in the past, if I look at who I've been, God doesn't want to be a part. He doesn't want anything to do with me. But that's so far from the truth. That's so far from the truth that God wants you to draw near to him. In speaking of relationship, God wants you to draw near to him as a husband and a wife draw near to each other. God wants you to draw near to him because he first drew near to you. You see, the only person in the Old Testament who had the ability to go before God was the priest. Now, because our great high priest, Jesus, we have access to draw near and get close to that holy God. Second thing the writer tells us to do is hold firm. What does he say to hold firm to? This is verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised it, that's God, is faithful. You see, so what do we hold firm to? We hold firm to the gospel. The gospel that you were so sinful that Jesus had to die for you, but you were so loved that he chose to die for you. You hold fast to the fact that Romans 5, 8 says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you and God showed his love to you in that way. But sometimes I think we forget that despite God saving us, is God saving me then enough to keep me going now? Like, I believe God saved me then, but the, the, the struggle that I go through daily, does God have anything to offer to me then? Does God have anything to offer to me on the day-to-day grind when I'm working at my job and people seem to not care about my faith? Uh, my, my spouse doesn't seem to care that, that what I'm trying to do to help them matters. And everything about your day, you ask the question, is the gospel enough? And I'll say first it is, but God also has given us other promises through his word. God says to hold fast to our confession. But the whole Bible builds up to the point that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But there are other promises in scripture 
that he's given us. Let's look at those for a second. In the midst of your sorrow. In the midst of your sorrow, Romans 15, 13 says, God is your joy. In the midst of your pain, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says that God is your comfort in your affliction. In the midst of your fear and anxiety, Philippians 4, 7 says, God is your peace. When you struggle with temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God gives you a way out of that. When you struggle with life's storms, Psalm 61.3 says, God is a refuge and a strong tower. Psalm 18.2 says, God is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my salvation and stronghold. When you're struggling with unfaithfulness to God, 2 Timothy 2.13 says that God, in the midst of your unfaithfulness, is still faithful. And in the midst of your sinfulness, the whole Bible speaks to the fact that Jesus died for you and for your sin. And for that, we are thankful. We look at God's promises, we look at what he's told us, and realize that God doesn't waver. Yeah, we, we do. We worry and we fear and we go through times in our life where we choose something over something else, but God always knows what's best because he is sovereign, because he is all-knowing, and God never wavers. So what do we hold fast to? We hold fast to his promises. When you're struggling through something in life, as some of you walked in this morning Uh, struggling through various things, many things. You hold on to God's promises because he doesn't waver. God's word that says he's our stronghold, that doesn't waver. We might, but he doesn't. You walk in here this morning and your marriage is on the brink of, of, of ending. You hold firm to the fact that God says he is your rock and your fortress in the midst of life's storms. You walk in here this morning and you're struggling because you see somebody you love in pain, whether it be physical or emotional, and you realize that God is the God of all comfort. That's what we hold firm to. So as we're drawing near to God and we hold on to his promises, the third thing the writer of Hebrews tells us to do is we're to stir up. Stir up, that says in verse 24, and let us not... Excuse me, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This idea carries the, the, the idea of like a football team who um, go, you come out on the field. And because this is all about, we've seen in the first passage, or excuse me, in the first section, we've seen that our relationship with God now exists. We hold on to his promises. Now we have a relationship with other people. So as a football player, you come up to the line of scrimmage and you're just wanting to attack this team and, and, and go as far as you can and get as many positive yards as you possibly can go. And you walk up to the line of scrimmage and you get there and then you, you see this real big, mean guy in front of him. And you're like, man, we're going to take him. And you look around and that we turns into me because you see the rest of your team is shaking in their boots over there because they're worried about this team. I think many of us sometimes get caught up in the idea that we don't need other people in our life to help us in our relationship with God, but that's so untrue. Because this passage says, let us consider how to stir one another up. In other words, that's like the football players getting together in the huddle and like talking to each other, encouraging each other and saying, look, you know, we're going to make sure that whatever we do, we're going to score right here. And they say whatever they need to do or smack each other in the head or whatever they've got to do to make sure they're stirring somebody up. So when they go to the line of scrimmage, they go forward. When this says, let us consider how to stir one another up, it's carrying that same concept. We don't go through this life alone because God has set up our relationship with him to be 
exemplified in our relationship with other people. You see, God's given us a community of people that we encourage and equip each other, and yet they encourage and equip us to live and walk with him. God has allowed you to go through something. I don't know what it is, but God has allowed you to go through something, and he has brought you through that because you were holding on to his promises, not for you just to keep in here, but for you to then go help somebody else who's going through the same thing. That's what we do as church. God helps us as we help other people. And God brings us through situations so that we can help other people get through those same situations based on us holding on to his promises. And in the midst of that, ministry often happens very informally. It doesn't happen necessarily here at church or behind uh, uh, this, this, this pulpit. Ministry happens when you're playing golf with a buddy. And he comes to you and he says, man, I'm just so worried that, you know, my son seems to be going down a path that I don't think he's going to get out of. And at that moment, as a follower of Christ, you can say, you know, that's, that's, that's sad. It's probably a good thing to say, but then you can also offer something to them. You see, God is placing that person in your life so that you can then minister to him. Or maybe it's a coworker, and she comes to you and she talks about issues she's having in her marriage. God is placing you in her life to stir her up, to to equip her so that she can love God, she can love other people, and she can love her husband. You see, God has brought many of you through something so that he can use you to bring somebody else through something in their own life. But God intends for us to grow, not by ourselves, but together, because the writer tells us, he says, Let's consider how to do this, but verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together. In other words, he's saying, don't buy into this lie that says you can be a Christian and you don't need the church, you don't need anybody else, you just need the Bible and God, and that's it. Because Jesus died for the church and Jesus has established his community of faith for us to be able to grow in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. So how does that best happen in a church? We see it, first off, you are already here worshiping. Worship happens, it's it's what we call our large group at Grace. This is what we want to invite people to and what we want uh, unbelievers to come to. But worship is a place where we come and we sing and we praise God and we hear his word taught. And I love coming in here and singing the songs that, that we sing. And as a while ago, I was standing in the back and I was watching. And I am so encouraged, stirred up, like this passage would say, when I see people around me worshiping the Lord, because I see people in here and in the first service who are going through difficult times in their life, and I know what they're going through, and yet they come in here and they're able to lift their hands and worship because they are holding fast to the promises God has made to them. And that encourages me. But not only worship, because worship is, is, is the, the, the starting point. But if you come in here, you, you hear something, you leave from here. God has, is giving you people around you that he wants you to grow in life together with. Around here, we would call this at Grace a small group. You to, to live life on life with somebody. Because it's, it could be easy to come in here. And not share what's really going on in in, in your heart with somebody and then just leave. But God's saying, no, take advantage of the people who are around you because they want to help you. They want to help you in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe for some of you, um, you're sitting there, you're thinking like, I've not done that for somebody else. God is talking to you right now saying, hey, 
you need to go and begin mentoring somebody or call somebody up and say, hey, you know, why don't we go out to lunch one day this week and let's, I, I feel God urging me to say, I just need to begin to pour into somebody and I feel like you're that person. God may be calling some of you to do that this morning. But he's given us a community of faith that we can gather together with to encourage each other to love God and to serve him. Parents, I'll I'll talk to you for a moment. In our Ready to Launch series, this series is about parenting specifically. Are you prioritizing time for your kids to be in church, to be among a community of believers? Is that a priority for you? Do you say, I'm going to make sure that my kid is around other people who love and know Jesus as much as we do? Do you allow godly men and women to pour into your kids' lives? When I say kid, it doesn't have to be a five-year-old. I'm talking about if you've got a kid that's 35. Are you making sure that there are godly men and women pouring into your kids' lives? We've already seen, I think Jerry spoke a couple of weeks ago, about the fact that if somebody has two or more people pour into their life as a teenager, they are more likely to keep the faith in college. But here's a, here's a crazy fact that 75% of teenagers who are involved in a youth group in high school leave the church when they go to college. 75%. But it says... That those students who had to at least two people pour into their life are more than 50% likely to return or not, not fall away from the church. And of those people who had five or more godly people who just informally, this is not like this big theological teaching, but just informally were involved in their life, five or more, they were 80% more likely to remain in church beyond high school. See, God has given us each other. God has given um, students, older adults to pour into their life. He's given kids, older adults to pour into their life. And God may be calling you to say, I need to begin doing that. Because some of you look back and you say, you know, I remained in church because somebody was willing to pour into my life. Or I fell away from the church, but I came back because somebody later on in life was willing to pour into me. God has created this so that we grow to love him and grow to serve him. This morning, if you will, let's bow our head. I want to pray for us. And as we pray, I want to, I want you to think about the fact that there was once this inaccessible God who has, through what Jesus has done, given us a relationship with him. Because of that, we can draw near to him. We can trust what he says. And we need to be building relationships with other people around us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. I pray that you would continue to bless the ministry of this church, Lord, as we look to make disciples, look to make your name known. Jesus, we are grateful that you died for us in our place because without you, we had no hope to know God. We had no hope for an eternity in heaven. 
God, I pray for those in here this morning who feel like they can't draw near to you, that you are so out there that they don't think they can make it, Jesus. I pray that you would show them through what you've done. You're so accessible. Lord, I pray that we would hold firm to what it is you teach us in your word about yourself, God, even though we waver. God, you do not. In the midst of life's storms, we would remember that you are the one who walked on water and calmed the storms. And God, because of your relationship with us, you've called us into covenant relationship with other believers. I pray for those in here this morning who you may be calling to begin to mentor or disciple someone. You would encourage them. They wouldn't walk out of here and think, well, maybe next time, but they would realize that you are saying to them, I need to to begin to pour into somebody else's life. Lord, thank you for those who've poured into mine, that you set them in my path, God. When I was 18 years old, about to walk away from the faith, you set somebody in my life who held me accountable and kept me there, Lord. Thank you for him, as well as others. Jesus, we're grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful to be in your presence. I pray that as we go from here, God, you would use others as well as your word to stir us up to love and good works, that we would serve you, we would love you, and we would love those people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.